1: Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History at Exeter University and is by far the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world, if not perhaps the entire earth. And today, we are speaking about his newest book, Imperial Legacies, the British Empire Around the World. Welcome, Professor Black. Good afternoon. Professor Black, what is the thesis of your book?
2: Uh, The book is really an attempt to engage with the way in which empire is considered in what one could broadly talk about the culture wars that are so prevalent in the Anglophone world, and it's an attempt to argue that the critique of empire, and specifically of the British Empire, is more a political account of the present day than a realistic presentation of what empire meant in the past.
1: Uh, Professor Black, there was a term in your preface which I never came across, so I'm curious as to the actual meaning of it. Uh, what in the name of God is Afrophobia?
2: Sorry, did I use the word Afrophobia? Y- yes, I'll you have did. Have a look at the, I'll have to have a look at the. I'll have to have a look at the preface. Tell me which page it's on. And, oh yes, um, well that's. I'm quoting somebody. I'm quoting yes, the are. current Lord Mayor of Bristol. So I am not answerable for the terms used, which are somewhat curious by some of the people. The current Lord Mayor of Bristol, as you will gather uh, from that, is somebody who, shall we say, um, finds it very difficult to offer a balanced account of the past. And um, in her um, account of um, Bristol's uh, history in the 18th century as a slave trading port, um she has um as it were, engaged very much in modern gesture politics, and I think the the terms she's using are very much modern gesture politics
1: understood uh without anticipating overly so the rest of the discussion, can you, in a nutshell uh explain to the audience? what you believe has led to this outbreak of um, anti-historical protests, my characterization, not yours, um, against such revered public figures of the past as, say, Sir Winston Churchill or Cecil Rhodes or Joseph Chamberlain, etc.
2: Well, I think in part it represents um, generational conflict, in part it represents a left-wing critique of, Uh, national tradition. In part, it's a way of attacking the United States uh, through the surrogacy of Britain. In part, it's the foundation myths of a lot of independent countries, which were originally part of the empire, and more particularly, the intellectual strategies and career trajectories of politicians and intellectuals bound up in that. Uh, I mean, I think that starts us off. There are there are many other factors involved, and as you will know, having read the book, I go in some detail into the situation in the United States, um, in India, in Britain itself, um, in uh, Australia, Canada, and a number of other uh, countries, including Ireland. I mean, the the actual specifics vary by state, but a lot of it is to do with an attempt to build a politicized modern either nationalism or internationalism on the basis of an account of the past which, in which there is a convenient sort of beanbag to kick around the room.
1: And would it be accurate to say this is all part and parcel of, uh, for lack of a better expression, one may term a cultural turn in certain terms of neo-Marxist thought? It's for, it's difficult for example to uh, imagine someone like the late, I'm only thinking about this because I'm, I've am i scheduled a podcast with Sir Richard Evans in a couple weeks time, uh, Eric Hobsbawm. Whatever one may think of him, uh, positively and negatively, it's difficult to imagine that he would indulge in this type of uh, cultural, university campus-based politics.
2: Well I think, I mean <laughs> uh, Hobsbawm was a man of of the left as 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 Richard Evans will no doubt explain and I don't think he was a particular fan of the British empire but I think that the um classic marxist account uh, was not so much to do with um some of the issues which are now raised in the critique although I do think that part of the post 1990 um Critical discussion of both the British Empire and the argument that America was becoming an empire um, in part derives from um, the Cold War and the Marxist critique then of Britain and indeed the United States as their empires, as their enemies. And indeed, it's worth bearing in mind that what we call the Cold War, which Americans tend to date to the period beginning in 1945, uh, instead, as as you may know, I've published a book on the Cold War, instead should more correctly be dated as beginning with the communist or Bolshevik, whichever term you wish to use, revolution in 1917. And the principal opponent in that stage of the Soviet Union uh, was Britain, and therefore the British Empire. And to a certain extent, there is a continuation of that. I mean, that would be too reductionist an account, and it would be a mistake for my part to offer a reductionism that is uh, as shallow as much of that which is critical of of the past of the empire, but that element is part of it.
1: One of, to my mind, more curious aspects of the the, uh, type of campus protests and other um, foundation myths uh, et cetera, in the book is the lack of interest by our campus warriors of uh, contemporary human rights violations of uh, countries where, in many cases, their own university campuses have a uh, correct i'm sorry a direct um, institutional tie. for example, I'm an alumnus of NYU. And NYU has a campus in the Gulf, um, notorious human rights violators, almost all the nations of the Gulf, as well as in the PRC. But as far as I'm aware, this has not gotten any traction in terms of protests. Instead, um, protests, and this is true not only of NYU, but of any any number of other um, institutions, academic institutions, which have uh, ties to these in particular to the Gulf and to the PRC, and instead there is this fixation on the past. How would you explain this, to my mind, almost incomprehensible uh, anomaly? And um, in view of the fact that, in the case of one, something actually could be done, meaning that campus protests could force, one supposes, uh, these academic institutions. To stop having relations, and in essence, to legitimise regimes which are notorious human rights violators, particularly the PRC. Uh, Well,
2: first, I agree. I agree agree with you entirely. I mean, you can see this in the discussion and critique of slavery. Slavery is clearly a vile and unpleasant phenomenon, and is something which is disgusting. But what is interesting is so much of the critique is about slavery in the. 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries and specific slavery by uh, Western societies. I mean, what people tend to ignore is slavery exists in the present day. Uh, There is what you might call public slavery, Uh, People in countries like North Korea have, in effect, no power. They are state slaves. uh, And that is completely ignored by the vast bulk, not absolutely everybody, but the vast bulk of people who write on issues of slavery. Again, for example, critiques of racialism are usual. Racism are usually directed against white societies. Um, And, for example, I mean, it is absolutely bizarre um, to to see the way in which um, shall we say, uh, caste uh, policies in countries such as India, sort of are are just not really brought into the equation. So I think partly it's to do with laziness, uh, partly it's to do with, you know, following the crowd, partly it's to do with political strategies. I mean, you can see that in, for example, Monsieur Assange, who is much happier having a go at the United States than he is in criticizing Russia or China or other um, states that are autocracies. So I think that there is a a matter of intellectual laziness and comfort uh, and and politics. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And people would rather sound off about the past than actually deal with the difficulties of the present. And, you know, (laughs) we can see that repeatedly. It's easier to do that. And, of course, why they're doing that in part is what they are arguing is that by – as it were, attacking um, uh, what they would present as the use of the past to validate current power structures. They would argue they are criticizing and undermining those power structures. Well, what's interesting is which power structures they choose to go at. I mean, you know, obviously the critique is directed, as you've correctly said, overwhelmingly at societies that have democracies, which whatever their imperfections and limitations are societies which uh, at least legitimate the the concept and practice of opposition, whereas there is no such legitimation in societies that are totalitarian. Uh, Is
1: that what you meant in the book when you refer to, quote, simplistic approaches to the concept of empire
2: "well i mean that's one of the things i mean i would say in general there are very simplistic ac- approaches to empire there is a sort of notion that um the choice was between empires and sort of communities of free loving people living in that um nat- uh, natural independence which of course is not the case i mean repeatedly the choice is between one empire and another empire I mean, if you think about it, um, uh, you know, a lot of criticism has been expended against Britain as an imperial power in India. Uh, I think it's worth bearing in mind that there was an empire already there. That empire was the Mughal Empire. The Mughal Empire was founded by conquest forum. Central Asia by Babur after his victory at the first battle of Panipat in 1526. It was an Islamic empire that was established. And for that matter, if you really wanted to be difficult, you could point out that although India today is a democratic society, which is excellent and something that's really impressive and they're having an election at the present day, the way in which Indian power is experienced in some areas, in Kashmir, for example, is itself that of an empire. And so I think this is much more complex. And and again, looking and taking that forward, first, a lot of Post-colonial powers, Indonesia is another example. In areas like Sumatra or, or Western New Guinea, is experienced as an imperial power, or China is experienced as a near imperial power in Xinjiang and Tibet. So you can take that point of view, and you can also actually look for direct comparators. I mean, it's very odd indeed to see the extent to which the baleful and um, really very uh, um, you know wrong uh, British response to uh, disturbances in Amritsar in 1919. Uh, Those have been correctly castigated, you know, that is good, Um, but far more of a a pass has been given to um, the Indian brutality in the very same city of Amritsar um, in the 1980s, in which uh, operating against Sikh terrorists, who of course deserved being dealt with, but large numbers of Sikh Um, civilians who in no way were involved in terrorism were, you know, it has to be said bluntly murdered by the Indian Army. And, you know, that sort of thing does not tend to be discussed. And again, you know, you've got the same sort of thing with slavery. Western slavery is quite rightly castigated. Yeah, absolutely. What tends not to be castigated is the practice of slavery within Africa itself. And for that matter, um, slavery uh, as as uh, operated by um, Islamic slave traders off the east coast of, of of Africa. And that again tends to, you know, it's, it's there in the scholarship, but it doesn't really tend to play its role in the public debate. So the public debate is a inadequate um, approximation and palimpsest of the scholarship. The scholarship itself can be flawed and, and partisan, there's no doubt about that. And then on top of that, your comments about um campus politics. Well, campus politics is often ridiculous. I mean, but there is this idea at the present moment of, quote, decolonizing the syllabus. I mean, we have that absurdity at my university. It's an absurdity at many universities. But what that actually means in practice is a highly partisan and slanted approach to the past, which is linked to, of course, you will not be surprised, a partisan and politicized approach to the present.
1: Getting back to India... Would it be correct to say that someone who comes uh, from, say, an ideological perspective close to the current government, BJP, would have a different take on the Indian past than someone who comes from Congress? To elucidate a little bit, BJP is um, associated with a very rather strong form of Hindu nationalism, as opposed to Congress, which at least historically speaking, if not in the present day so much, was more of a secular – semi-social or state socialist, if you like, uh, perspective. Would um, uh, those two differ in terms of how they view the past, particularly vis-a-vis the British and the Mughals, or would be more akin to each other?
2: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the BJP very much has either explicitly or implicitly, depending upon which politician you're listening to, a a violent, vicious, and often very unpleasant anti-Muslim um, approach, which means that um, the Mughals tend to get it in the neck um, and they're much keener, for example, at the Maharatas who were um, 17th and 18th century opponents of the Mughals. And the, the British are not treated very charitably by either group, which is fair enough. I mean, one shouldn't ask for the charity of people, but they are, but uh, what is Interesting is that many people who criticize the British are happier doing so rather than engaging with the complexities of Indian politics today. And there is a fair amount of prejudice, of partisanship, and of sectarianism in that politics today, as well as, of course, in some areas I've already mentioned. Kashmir, but you can also see it in the campaigns against the Naxalites, you can see it in parts of Northeast India, there is, you know, a fair amount of militarization of Indian policy and politics. and you know it's not only in those countries where you can sometimes ask the question, um, you know, however unattractive and unappealing the British Empire was, and I'm sure it was both, um, it has to be asked in some states, Nigeria for example, or Sri Lanka, whether they were not, in many respects, um, the you know, many respects better off. Um, Now, I'm not saying that in order to say empire is a good thing. I certainly wouldn't want to see it come back again, but the idea that it's automatically to be regarded as a worse, um, you know, a a bad past from which there has been uh, a a better present is, I think, absurd. And you can see that uh, not just in areas of sectarianism and civil violence. You can also see it in questions of corruption in politics. Um, and you can see it in the way in which what were often very noble aspirations for um democratic post colonial government which had not worked terribly well, and you know i mean it's it 's all very well to to um be critical of Western imperialism, but aside from the point which we've already made that, that underplays the role of non-Western imperialism, dramatically underplays it, it is also the case that even those societies which uh, in the context um, of their post-imperial history have not uh, operated in an imperialistic fashion, uh, they have not necessarily had a benign politics, and I think that's worth considering. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, these are Issues which are uncomfortable for many people, and it's understandable that they're uncomfortable, and it's understandable that many people prefer to just sound off about the past and that that's how they prefer to do it. And as I've said, many political and intellectual strategies, many careers are based upon doing that, and you wouldn't make a successful career in many universities in the world by saying that the present system is not a particularly good one, but that does not validate the propositions that are offered uh, by what those you term the campus critics of the West. And I think your point, which is that, alas, uh, there is a fair amount of laziness and worse than laziness in much of their historical critique is, I think, entirely accurate. I would agree with that. I mean, I'm coming to the end of my academic career due to issues of, you know, I'm not as young as I once was, um, and I find, I, I find it disappointing to see the way in which the room for debate within universities is not as great as it was, and I think that particularly the case uh, of york at great country the united states which has which is a functioning democracy in political terms but not always in the exchange of opinion um or the free range of the exchange of opinion and i would add to that that um what is disappointing i mean it's a point made to me many years ago by a french academic bruno never who you know told me having come back and he expressed it much nicer in french of course but having come back from a tour to the united states and he said how how odd it was that he found so many american academics um were sort of very hostile towards the communities within, within which they lived you know the states in which they were um where the values were different and i i think that is the case and obviously one of the ways in which a lot of people find it happiest to beat up on is to beat up on the evil Brits. I mean, you know, the Brits are always the villains in American um, te- you know, televisions and films and all the rest of it, Pirates of the Caribbean and all the rest of it. And in part, what they're doing is engaging in a culture war and attacking, say, country club republicanism uh, under the guise of having a go at the Brits.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: not correct to say that uh, you would adhere to Niall Ferguson's um, uh, idea or concept that the British Empire overall was, quote, a good thing, unquote.
2: Oh, I didn't say that I agreed or disagreed with that. Niall Ferguson's a very talented man. He's a a, a brilliant scholar and a very, very astute um, correspondent in the newspapers. His columns every week in the Sunday Times of London are excellent. No, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that at all. And in fact, and Ferguson makes a point in one of his books in which he says that the British Empire, in a sense, achieved its civilizational value most acutely um, in the major role it played in uh, World War Two in resisting uh, Germany, you know, Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. And I would agree entirely with that. And um, I would have said one of the most creditable episodes in Indian history in the last Century as the large number of Indians who fought as volunteers uh for britain um against Japan and against um Italy and against germany i think I would agree entirely with uh with ferguson's point on that um I think that in the case of um in the case if you go back i mean you know I've done a biography of George the third, and I did argue in that that george the third's Response to growing disaffection in the 13 colonies and what becomes the United States was a mistake, and it would have been better for Britain if America had followed the trajectory that and had been able to follow the trajectory that was later to be followed by Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Um, So no, I mean the it's not automatically the case that empire was always correct, and it's not automatically the case that the defenders and expansionists of empire were always right. I wouldn't say that for a second. But what I would say is that of the empires in world history, the British Empire was a singularly benign one. That's not going to make you very happy if you were experiencing uh, British conquest. But if you compare it, the question is comparison. And as I said earlier, one has to often compare it with what the alternatives were.
1: Would you agree with uh, Bernard Porter's thesis that um, for the British public in the 19th and 20th century, uh, the empire was something that they were for the most part indifferent to and certainly did not identify with it in any deep uh, way or fashion?
2: No, I think he's wrong. I mean, he's obviously argued that frequently in his career. No, I don't I don't uh, accept that at all. And um, I think if you were, you know – Reading newspapers, which most people could do, what by the late 19th century, if you were going to music halls. Um, you would have had a fairly large quantity of imperial sentiment offered to you. And, of course, many of your family members would have gone off. I mean, a large number went to the United States, of course, but many of your family members would have gone off to Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, and you'd have felt a sense of empathy and identity with them. So, no, I think he's actually wrong. I think it's certainly the case that there was more of an interest in some parts of empire than others. I don't think, for example, there was much of a commitment or interest uh, to, for example, the expansion of empire into what they used to call Burma. We now call Myanmar. I mean, so I would agree, you know, there wasn't much of an interest in British Guiana, uh, uh, you know, but I don't think it's that's the same as saying that there was no interest in empire as a whole or in some of the major colonies.
1: What do you mean by exactly when you say that the foundation myths in many countries of the world are anti-imperial in nature?
2: Well, what they are is that they're based upon the notion that their modern history begins with the rejection of British power or the end of British power. So their foundation myths, the accounts they provide of their origins are ones in which Britain has to be bad, an empire has to be bad, because otherwise, how do you explain why you're starting off anew and in a different trajectory? Um, so I think that that is the case, and um, you know, I think that's fairly commonplace with um, ex-imperial colonies. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean, though, that you get an accurate account. So if you take Ireland, for example. What tends to be, um, you know, really underplayed in Irish history is the extent to which um, the Irish in the 19th century were major participants in the British Empire, and you know, um, uh, many of them fought for the Empire. A very large number of soldiers in the Empire were Irish, of course. Uh, many of them had took part in it governmentally, economically, and migrated within it. Now that approach does not tend to be fostered either. If you look at modern uh, modern Ireland, or indeed if you look at the Irish American diaspora, um, but actually it's accurate. Um, it may be inconvenient because it might be easier for you know people in Chicago or Dublin to think of themselves as people that at one stage had it put upon them by the evil Brits. But actually, um, if you were a, uh, a soldier of the British crown in 1850, 1850, you were just as likely to come from Connemara as you were from Somerset. So, And that kind of approach doesn't tend to have much attention devoted to it.
1: But isn't the case for Ireland that, uh, unlike I think most or almost all the other cases that you discuss in terms of foundation myth, that Ireland in the last 30 or 40 years, its historiography has uh, gone from, if you want to employ the terms used by Butterfield, from the heroic narrative to a historical narrative, and in the case of Ireland, thinking specifically of the revisionist school, most probably the best known um, adherent of it being Roy Foster, which
2: I was that's certainly at. true of that's certainly true of some academics, but you're not going to find it true of very many museums, for example, in Ireland and nor are you going to find it very true in much of the public memorialization. Um, and, you know, the I mean, I was not so long ago on Cambridge Common North near Boston where the statue dedicated in 1997 to the great hunger bears the inscription, never again should a people starve in a world of plenty. Um, also, you get the ludicrous um way in which the Easter Rising of 1916 is portrayed. I mean, let's be clear about this, Britain was involved in an extraordinarily difficult war at that part, the World, World War I. And you know a small number of people rose in rebellion, starting off of course by murdering a policeman who of course was irish uh, but that of course doesn't you know that doesn't of course he doesn't bear commemorating because of course um he was on the side of the of government, and you know these people taking arms and money from the Germans. And they are presented as great heroes of Irish nationalism. Well, I don't think you would find that in many other countries engaged in a world war. They would have had a tremendously sympathetic uh, view of rebels in that context. Um, and I, I, so, I wouldn't agree with you. I would say that although academic uh, academics may be aware that there is a greater complexity, I don't think it necessarily washes very much into the uh, into the public uh, into the public account.
1: But didn't in the case of Ireland. I mean,
2: again, I mean, well, let me give you another thing, for
1: example.
2: If you look at the Irish Civil War of 1922 to 23, far more people were executed then by the government of Ireland um, than were executed by the British when they suppressed the Easter Rising. But of course, the uh, the British are held up as bad, so that gets castigated. Whereas the seventy seven people who were uh, executed by the Irish government in nineteen twenty two and nineteen twenty three, that doesn't tend to feature very much. And again, as I said, and we'll come back. You know, I, I raised the issue of India. Exactly the same point can be made about um, the contrasting way in which um, you know and, Brit, and Ritz are the two. Uh, the two uh, appallingly violent episodes um and, uh, in amrit were um are treated today in india so i, I think that uh, whatever you might feel about the fact that intelligent people might be aware that their this matter can be complex i would I would put it to you that that does not often wash into the um into the public um I mean, I think the the you know the views on 1984 Operation Blue Star, you know the uh, the Indian Army and other uh, other paramilitaries uh, actions in the Punjab is that up to 25,000 people were eventually killed. Uh, you know that doesn't um, in any way excuse the 1919 massacre but it's a very different scale and what I found very interesting is that one gets attention and the other one does not and we could go on and on like that Um, there is a partisanship in the public memorialization which is very unattractive if what you want to do is have some sense that history is a trust between the generations in which our honesty to the past is in part a matter of trying to understand uh, what happened in the past because of the trust between the generations. Well, excusing massacres in the past, um, as uh, a lot of of the discussion seems to be, uh, when you focus on 1919 and not on 1984, or if you're an Irish nationalist, when you focus on 1916 and not on 1922 to 23, it's shallow. And I don't think that shallowness is acceptable, quite frankly. It might be convenient, and lots of life is convenient, and no doubt some of your listeners will not, will be, will send all sorts of abusive, uh, remarks as a result of what I'm just saying. But I'm afraid to say that shallowness is not something that's creditable. I think I mentioned in the book, um, that, um, you know, when I made a point about Amrits, similar to the one uh, that uh, we were talk that we've been talking about, um, one American academic, uh, using the cover of anonymity, which of course is always uh, hilarious, um, said that it was akin to excusing the SS. Well, this is so disproportionate, so absurd that one doesn't quite know where to come from in responding to that. There are, one of the difficulties for in history is we shouldn't assume that there is you know absolute perfection and that if it isn't absolute perfection everything else is equally terrible. That as I've said is shallow. The fact of the matter is power doesn't always operate as we would like it in fact it rarely operates exactly as we would like it but that does not mean that there are not differences in terms of the uh, character calibre and quality of choices made by people who were involved in that and I think from that point of view although there are episodes in the history of the British Empire that are shameful I think that on the other hand it is fair to say that that much of the critique that is directed at it is as I've said shallow foolish and partisan
1: and would that also be the case in the discussion uh, which has come up very recently in the public realm, uh, in the UK of slavery and the UK or the UK's uh, relation to the slave trade in from the late 16th century up to, um, to the early 19th century, 1807 is when this, when the UK abolished the slave trade, um, and the fact that um, even though there is a lot of um, stone throwing in terms of the UK record in that time period just mentioned. In point of fact, would you not agree that as compared to almost every other power in, the, in that time period, um, the UK had a better record, obviously much better after 1807 and particularly after 1833 when slavery was abolished throughout the British Empire than almost any other um, power, empire, state that one wishes to think about?
2: I'm I'm not sure that I would necessarily always approve of what the British did. They were major slavers and slave traders um, in the 18th century. But certainly the abolitionist cause moved rapidly forward in Britain. And once that cause was established and the legislation had been passed, the British then devoted a certain amount uh, of effort really quite a considerable amount of effort to trying to stop the slave trade now there were obviously and this is reprehensible a certain amount of economic interest that took part subsequently in collusive um, practices, for example, investing in slave societies like Cuba, um, but on the whole, British society moved pretty radically against slavery and the slave trade, and that indeed is one of the major reasons why during the American Civil War there was a lot of sympathy in Britain for the cause of the Union and um, the Confederate cause, although in theory, um, from the British point of view, here was another um, You know, um, people seceding from a state, if that had been okay in 1783, why wasn't it okay in um, in the 1860s? Nevertheless, the bulk of the British public uh, was engaged much more positively on the Union side precisely because of their support for the abolitionist cause. And uh, as you mentioned, I mean, slavery was abolished by the British before it was abolished by, for example, France or Spain or Portugal. Um, So, yes, I think that that was an important element in the what the British saw. And I think it's reasonable to say what many other people saw as a moral aspect of of policy, public policy and um, civil view um, in the in the 19th century. And, you know, the British saw in their terms their commitment to free, free trade. They saw that in the same light. And they had a sort of moralized and moralistic approach um, to imperial governance at the time. I mean, you must remember the the notion that the British had was that empire itself would be an inherently transient process, that it would last for a while, but that in the end, the idea of empire is that eventually colonies would become self-governing unfortunately that view was shot through with racism so they thought it would first be white colonies but the assumption in the end of the day is that it would in fact involve eventually all of the empire and that was the logic of course in the 20th century in the movement from empire to commonwealth now you could argue uh, that self-interest was bound up in that and I wouldn't disagree with you on that but nevertheless that's a very different proposition about empire to the idea that you would always be a empire based on you know, British district officers going out and telling people what to do and backed by backed up by troops in so doing.
1: Correct. And in the case of slavery, of course, it's very useful to remember, if we have mentioned already, that slavery was only abolished in Saudi Arabia in 1962, as well as uh, the non-British uh, states in the Gulf. And um, uh, but
2: beyond... Oh, but it still exists in states. It's, there's still slavery in places like, uh, in practical terms, in places like Mauritania, um, Sudan. I, as you may know, I've written a couple of uh, histories of the slave trade and the history of slavery, and it's worth bearing in mind that if you include, as I said, public slavery, which I do include, um, you know there are enormous episodes of public slavery in the twentieth century. You can think of the Soviet gulags. you can think of the uh, the Nazi concentration camps. You can think of governance in a country like North Korea at the present day um Slavery is yes much more present than people tend to give credit for and um one of the things as well as you 've got in terms of private slavery at the present moment or commercial slavery. You've obviously got uh, women being trafficked for prostitution. You've got um, slavery at the present moment um, in terms of enforced labor. I mean, I you know I gave a lecture some years ago at Greenwich at the National Maritime Museum uh, during Black Awareness Month or week I think it was, and on on this issue of, of uh, slavery, and I pointed out to the audience at the end that you know within five miles of where we then were, um, you would have been able to find slaves, and I'm sure, uh, today, and I'm sure the same thing is true. And uh, I find it odd that people like the mayor of Bristol, whom you mentioned at the very beginning with her curious vocabulary, I find it odd that she is so. So much more concerned about the image of Bristol in the eighteenth century than the reality of Bristol today, and i I find that unfortunate, which is you know civil service to service code for something completely different um, so yes, no, I agree with you very much that there is a a a misapplication of anger um, when people come to be looking at um, slavery and the slave trade, and some of the stuff is bizarre. I was at a um, colloquium in the British Library earlier this year in which an American scholar uh, told the audience that the British invented um, slave trade. Well, this would have been a bizarre view if you were Aristotle or sitting there in the Roman Empire or sitting there in the Islamic world of the, uh, you know, of the uh, of, of the let's say the Fatimid, uh, the Fatimids in um, Cairo, or the Abbasids in Baghdad, or the Ottomans in Constantinople, it's an absurdity, of course, a complete absurdity. But it suits people's intellectual strategies to say that, and obviously it's a way to get a cheap cheer from the audience.
1: Near the end of the book, there was a curious um, sentence, It almost had almost a Philip for me at least, almost Philip Larkin. Type of uh, lament. Uh, the sentences. The reality was a loss of independence and a lack of autonomy. What did you mean by that exactly?
2: Well, if you throw me the page it is on, I have a copy in front of me. I can give you the context. But I, you know, plan. Pl- this is a terrible thing to say, but you know, individual sentences I cannot always place in the context of my mind.
1: Well, I was discussing the end of the end of empire in in the UK domestic. Context.
2: Oh well, I certainly think that, and I'm, you know, I'm not alone in thinking this. That it's been difficult. And here, as I said, I disagreed with Bernard Porter. You know, he's a nice chap and a, um, and a good scholar. But I disagree with him. I think empire was more important for British identity, particularly British identity, as opposed to the identity of England and Scotland. In other words, it was part of the cohesion that uh, kept the two together. And I think that the loss of that. Left a lot of people somewhat confused now, the nature of 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 identity now, what that meant in terms of the way they responded varied enormously, I mean it's part and parcel of the background of uncertainty, which I think we can see as a theme in Britain over the last fifty years, and obviously is in some way, and again, I don't want to be a reductionist, is in some way related to the Uh, Debates and dissension over Britain's relations within and with the European Union So I think those are important points that are worth thinking about again I don't want to bore you silly, but if you look at my book Britain since 1945 I've tried to discuss that in greater detail. I think um, the United States has not had to face a comparable issue whereas um, there have been some other states that have had to do so, uh, France, for example, but they tend to have taken, you know, each state tends to have taken a different trajectory. Um, But in the case of Britain, I think it was very difficult. I think one of the major ways in which Scotland identified with England was as being part of a British Empire, I think the loss of that empire, particularly in what was known as, you know, Glasgow, the second city of empire, uh, which is Scotland's largest city, um, very much, I think, affected that situation. And certainly, I think, for older generations, I think it was an issue. Now, interestingly enough, um, you could argue that um, if you're looking at younger people, uh, this is much less of an issue um, and instead, um, it's the often emotional response to discontinuities in British politics today, um, particularly, as I said, in relations to continental Europe, that take that role instead.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
2: that we need to engage in culture wars, understanding that there are different points of view and that this engagement is important to our sense of current identity and thus future prospects. That in discussing the British Empire, we're not just talking about Britain, a relatively minor state off the continent of Europe. We're actually talking about much of world history directly and by surrogate, terms we're talking about the united states as well
1: with that being said i would like to thank you very much indeed professor black for being so kind as to speak with us today this is charles Cotillo. thanks for listening to new books in history a podcast channel on the new books network thank you professor black
2: thank you very much and best wishes to all my many friends in the united states and my relatives there